welcome back to Nice to Know. I'm Dr. Robin Schenk, and this is the podcast where I chat with everyday scientists to find out about what they know. It has been a while. I've been on a Christmas break uh, that extended into January, but I'm definitely uh, gearing up for season two. I've got lots of things planned for that. But before we get into season two, I thought it would be cool to put together some teasers from season one, my sort of favorite moments from all of the people that I talked to so that you can get a feel for what the podcast is about, the kind of people that I talked to, and some of the interesting things that they talked about in each of their episodes. Because I did 17 episodes last season, I'm actually going to split this into two parts just to make the episodes a bit shorter. So coming at you this week is episodes one to nine. And in the episode description, I will have timestamps as well for all of the different people that I talk to. So if you want to skip ahead and listen to anyone in particular, you can do that. And then coming next week, I will do the remaining episodes. So I hope you like this little teaser or reminder of season one and look forward to you joining me in season two. have an infection your immune uh, your immune cells are becoming activated and so they need to do more than they would in just a exactly normal state. so they need to do more and this means that they first of all they need to consume more energy there are three different nutrients that we rely on to right? drive like energy production. to drive energy right there is there's glucose or carbohydrates mm-hmm. Um, there is proteins and then there is fat, mm-hmm. right? And so for each one of these, there's a whole uh, machinery within your cell and a lot of pathways that you can do to break them down and drive energy for them. So Sort of like uh, making a fire, but you have newspaper, wood, or... Uh... I don't know what else you make a fire well, with. Newspaper and wood are kind of related. Oh, I'm just trying to find a good yeah. analogy here. Yeah. No, but it's like, yeah, it's like you have wood, coal, and peat. That's a much better one. Thank you. <laughs> but so basically, um, like, if you break them down to their basic components, they have uh, different chemistry, right? So mm-hmm. you need different ways to break them down. And you get different amounts of energy from each one of them. So the, the main two pathways or the, the, that the body relies on to produce a lot of its energy is that it either relies on glucose. Um, and the way it breaks glucose is called glycolysis. Mm-hmm. And then you could also feed on uh, fat, right? And so to feed on fat, you have to break down the fat and... Um, and th- so there's like oxidative phosphorylation means that you're relying on fatty acids to um, make energy. To make energy. And the difference between these two, or there's a lot of differences, but one of the two main differences, or the simplest differences, is that if you rely on glucose, it's fast. It's a lot faster than getting energy from fat, but it's uh, in comparison has less energy than fat. If you see a molecule, it has a specific structure, right? Mm. And whatever you, whether you have it on a shelf or your body or in a plant, the structure is not going to change. Mm. And whether you f- make it in the lab or the plants make it, the molecule is the same. Mm. You know, you can actually write a list of, um, not compounds, but like a list of whatever makes also like a piece of fruit. 
mm-hmm. um, as a list of ingredients. You know, of course, yeah. the names are going to be weird and long yeah. and sometimes unpronounceable. <laughs> but it is what sometimes? it is, you know, yeah. Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> Um, you know, a strawberry still has like 50 different compounds and most of them, even if you do in the lab, is the same as if the plant has made them mm. in the, in the, um, in the fruit itself. And that's how artificial kind of flavorings are made as well, exactly. right? Like just these compounds. Perfectly that, the yeah. same. Uh, xylitol, you know, it's just a sweetener that it's usually like putting, chewing gums. Mm. It's extremely natural. You, you extract it from the xanthan plant. Yeah. And still people like, oh my God, no, it's bad. I mean, yeah. no, not everything is bad after, I mean above a certain uh, threshold, I yeah. would say. It's hard for people to, I think, relate. Anything that must be made in a lab must yeah. be toxic, right? Exactly. But when you look at it in its basic form, that, as you say, it's just exactly the same chemical. Exactly. It was just made in a different way. Totally. With the, the kids that report that they feel a lot of what other people are feeling, so the kind of high, the high affective empathy kids, are also the same kids that are reporting high anxiety and particularly social anxiety. Yeah, and because so when I looked at when I looked at this, it was actually only at one time point. So I can't say, you know, I can't say which direction that's going in, like whether the high empathy leads to the high anxiety or whether it's the other way around. Or whether they're actually sort of just tapping a similar thing. It might be that these kids are um, other kids who are more emotionally reactive. Uh, yeah. So there's sort of a lot of different follow-on questions that need to be asked. But even just establishing that, I found to be like quite interesting. So an osteoclast is in your bone. So mm-hmm. osteo is bone, right? And osteoclasts are there to degrade your bone. So they eat bone. And this is kind of a balance because there are also other cells that form bone and then the osteoclast degrades it. And if it's a balance, you're fine, right? And in certain disease settings like arthritis, this balance can um, change and then the osteoclasts eat more than can be built up. And then you would have osteoporosis, for example, or um, kind of too little bone or less bone than there should be. It seems a bit counterintuitive, maybe just to me who doesn't know anything about osteoclasts, but why would, why would we have something that is eating away at our bones? Like, does that not sound terrifying <laughs> to you? Um, yes, but in principle, our body is very, it's a kind of in a flux. And in the bone, it's really a thing about demand because um, bones need to be strong, right? So they don't break, but they also need to be flexible. And for example, what I really like is the concept that pregnancy, for example, you would need more calcium or stuff that is stored in the bones. And, you know, you could have more breakdown just to get more calcium for for the kid. And okay. it's also a fun fact my, my mom said before the time where you would have a lot of, you know, you would take all these vitamins and stuff. They would say one child, one tooth, basically. So, oh, really? Yeah. So often during pregnancy, you would lose a tooth. Because, Uh. you know, (laughs) calcium needed to be freed up for the kid. Wow. So, yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't think very many people these days would know that. Yes, so please take your vitamins. (laughs) (laughs) We try to, or we will try to, they have been uh, trying to realize precision medicine, not only for cancer and other genetic diseases, 
but also for more common diseases that impact a greater number of people, such as diabetes or heart disease, for example. Uh, and also in a way that is more inclusive. So a lot of data or molecular data, such as DNA sequencing we have, is actually highly skewed for certain ethnical groups. I was just about uh, to say, it's a lot of like white people, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, <laughs> huge problem. <laughs> so in a racially diverse country and city, it makes sense to, you know, sort of try to be inclusive and investigate the differential effect of treatments or molecular patterns that are that can be different between different people. So and the goal is to bring precision medicine to everyone. Mm. And by precision medicine, you mean maybe you could define that a little bit? So is treatments which are guided by molecular evidence in order to give a, the best treatment to a specific person yeah. or, or group of, of people. Yeah, so like a good uh, example would, of that would be uh, certain cancers have, or maybe breast cancer is one that's well known, have these uh, specific mutations that are very common and then you can design or you would hope to have a drug that targets that specific effect of that mutation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's very precise. <laughs> <laughs> So my focus was on how the eggs of the squid and the resultant, uh, what we call paralarvae, if I use that term, it just means hatchling baby squid. And looking to see, because those eggs are laid inshore, they come to the shallows to basically lay these big egg masses in the ocean sediment and just leave them there. If the ocean acidifies, which it's currently doing, and those eggs are, you know, developing in more acidified waters, how would that impact their survival, their physiology, their behavior? And, you know, how could that potentially impact this population of, of squid that, you know, a lot of animals we directly care about because we eat them, like tuna or other things eat, or animals like whales also eat a lot of this squid. So it was important to see, you know, Will these climate variables, things like warming, but mainly my focus was acidification, impact early life? Maybe you can um, expand a little bit on this concept of ocean acidification, just for people who aren't familiar with the term. Oh, absolutely. So ocean acidification is often like considered the side effect of climate change, which is to say it's not caused by the same process of the heat trapping of CO2, but it's still caused by an increase of CO2, of carbon dioxide. So as we put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it also dissolves into the ocean. The ocean and the atmosphere have a, a exchange of gases that keep them at equilibrium. So, you know, it's the same process of like leaving soda on the counter and it goes flat over time. That's the soda off-gassing into the atmosphere. This is the reverse. If you're putting more gas into the atmosphere, it's going into the water. And when carbon dioxide goes into water, it reacts and forms an acid. So as we increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're increasing it in the ocean and it's making it more acidic. So why? <laughs> why, do you, why do these metamaterials exist and why do you throw light at them? Ah, so that's a good question. We want to create so, sort of materials that do not have properties that are um, readily found in nature. So there can be a lot of um, uses for these. 
I think maybe the uh, most uh, popular application that you might have heard of if you're a fan of Harry Potter is the invisibility cloak. Ah. Generally, light travels in the same direction as you know its propagation, right? So uh, if the wave is moving this way, the 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 light will move that way, and that's um, you know because it has the refractive index is sort of a positive property in nature. So you could essentially design a kind of material that has a negative refractive index, so that the light that is traveling would form an image in the opposite direction of, of its propagation. So like a, an example of that is uh, maybe in, in theory, if you imagine a river with a negative refractive index and there were a fish swimming in that river, right? If you were to look inside the river, you wouldn't see the fish in the river. You would rather see the fish floating in air because the image is forming on the opposite direction of where the image is actually, um, you, you know, emerging. Yeah. What I'm doing at the moment is I'm setting up these infection models. So we have salmonella on one hand, and then, as I said, I'm hoping to bring in my worm friends. Um, they're specifically called, oh, God, I always, this name, it always gets me, Heglosmomoides polygyrus or H-poly, that's what we call it in the biz, because who has the time to say that full name? Uh, so yeah, with the salmonella and the H-poly, they are cool because they stimulate basically opposite immune responses. So to any of you dear listeners who has had the joy to have salmonella, you will know that it is not a good time. <laughs> uh, and it's like, <laughs> uh, causes like a lot of uh, inflammation in, in the gut and is like a quite aggressive, acute um disease whereas the worms are actually very smart and they they have the immune system be very calm and kind of the immune system can be like super inflammationy driven or it can kind of uh, lean this other way and, and be almost more wound healing so you know if you cut yourself you need to heal and the worms stimulate this kind of wound healing type response and so we can then take our two models the salmonella and the worms and put them into mice where we can manipulate the enteric nervous system. So maybe knock out a certain uh, receptor from a, a brain cell or take out a certain subset of these brain cells completely and then see how those mice cope with these infections and how the immune system might change. Do we see more of certain cell types or are they more aggressive or are they less good at controlling the infection? Already, like the very first kind of um, textbook 101 quantum mechanics thing that a lot of people learn is that well in quantum mechanics actually when you measure something you inherently generally change the state of the system that you're looking at oh. and this yeah this is really kind of um i would say anti-intuitive or something like this because from a classical perspective i expect that when i measure something right i'm just looking at it and kind of revealing a property that it already had so I don't know, if I look down at my socks, I see that they're blue. I mean, they're blue whether or not I choose yeah. to look at them. This is kind of our classical intuition, right? But in quantum mechanics, it's in fact not the case. And there are many, many experiments talking about this. And we really know um, that the world at small scales behaves like this. So it's not just some crackpot theory. 
But in, in quantum mechanics, it would rather be like, I have a pair of socks on, there's some color, let's just say for argument's sake, they could be either red or blue. But actually, one, one, one kind of description of quantum theory would be to say that, well, my socks don't even really have a color until I choose to measure it. And then when I look at my socks, I might see it to be blue. And maybe it's blue like 95% of the time. And sometimes I could also like look at it and see that it's red and that might be red 5% of the time. So actually also like measuring quantum systems disturbs them. And we can only really make statements about the probabilities to see certain outcomes. So in a sense, there becomes like a second level of randomness in quantum mechanics. There's the randomness from like your system interacting with all of its environment. But there's kind of this additional randomness, which comes from the fact a little bit that measurements also change the state of your system. And So thanks again for listening. And as I said, that was just part one of the best of season one. So stay tuned for next week. I will bring to you the remaining seven or eight episodes that I did with Nice to Know Season 1. And yeah, then we'll be on to Season 2. Bye-bye.